patrons how lovely to see you you're here for the second half of the russell jacoby interview aren't you well here it is and after that it'll be the after party where george phil and myself will debate the themes of the interview and try to tease out the political implications of what we've just heard you know we used to go out and play and you know get lost come back for dinner you know no one says that anymore at least in the states, you know, you have sports, you have this, you have that, you, you know, you're 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 regulated. Um, but perhaps there is a price to pay for the individual. Mm. I mean, has has lost something. Yeah. So I mean, you try you draw out or you know hint at some serious political consequences for this, which uh, was kind of new to me. I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, this idea that we perhaps as you know society no longer creates a sort of subjects adequate to democracy um let alone probably something you know taking on grander feats like you know emancipatory revolution um but the is the conclusion then that you know because of this childhood because of these childhoods with without free play without the possibility of imagination without the pos without children being able to learn to self-regulate um, and to co-inhabit the same spaces with people they disagree with and argue with and whatever, that this makes politics impossible. I mean, is that the conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a big leap. I mean, I allude to that uh, in that chapter. I mean, that, you know, that, and again, you know, this, this, you know, if kids grow up more and more isolated and I, you know, I, I cite some stuff about, you know, playgrounds being empty, kids going home to, you know, look at their computers. Uh, is it possible people are, are losing some of the skills for human interaction? I mean, it's just, you know, we're, we're, we're getting worse at it. Is that possible? And to what extent does that play into politics? Um, and I raise it as a possibility. And, you know, I cite some, you know, bus drivers and others who say, you know, kids don't get along anymore. They don't know how to get along. Uh, they, they've sort of lost that ability. And is that possible in on, a, on a grander scale? I don't know. I mean, it seems it seems like it could have an impact. Uh, you know, kids losing the, the the ability to say, you know. And again, I say, you know, if you're playing with kids, you know, at a, at a pickup game, um, if you can't agree, the game falls apart. You know. It's just like, you know, what was a foul? What was wrong? You know, so if you can't agree, everyone goes home. Mm. So there was a certain uh, compulsion to, to come to some agreement. But you say, oh, yeah, I'm going home to do a video game. You know, who, who has to agree with anyone? Yeah. And so it, it's there's always a, There's always a structuring authority there to resolve the issue for you at, in, in some way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to, you know, come to some rough agreement or the game is over. 
you know, you're playing some some pickup game. You say, otherwise, you know, and so maybe there's that that's gone, or at least again, it's 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 diminished. Um, and there's regulated sports, in which case we have referees. Uh, but you know, the spontaneous thing is 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 you know gotten weaker. I mean, in my experience, referees are, are subject to to a healthy degree of disrespect, which is, I think, as it should be. So, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, and that's the case in professional sports, or at least in in, in football or soccer. Anyway, I'm, I'm, right. <laughs> I'm, right. Right. I'm getting kind of sidetracked because what I want to get to is is something that's a core argument of the book in which you trace the decline of individuality, I guess, if we're going to distinguish it from individualism, um, down from the kind of early 19th century down to today. Um, so maybe you could explain this argument for, for those who aren't familiar with it. Well, uh, you know, I'm pursuing the, you know, partially the, 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 the question of play is being uh, part of that story. Um, but the larger story is, is, is the, the consumer society and the homogenization, which seems to me is ongoing. And to what extent, you know, the individual capital I is is you know getting weaker. And and you know, I, I bring up the classic liberal thinkers. I mean, you know, uh, Mill and, and Tocqueville, and to what extent they were concerned not so much with state censorship, so to speak, or state authority. They were concerned, and, and Mill, it's it's very clear. I mean, it, he was concerned with with sort of public conformity. That is, that is, as the individual gets weaker, uh, the the group gets stronger. Uh, the group the group uh, agreement gets stronger, and that the danger in the democratic societies, and what has to be very clear, we're talking about the democratic societies. Um, the danger is the weakening of the individual becomes subject to a kind of group conformity. And the great liberal thinkers of the 19th century, you know, basically were raising that as an issue. I mean, they were less concerned with the state arresting the dissenters and more concerned with this kind of fear uh, of, of, uh, of, of being censured by the group and not by the state. And, you know, again, I'm raising that, you know, you know, perhaps they were right, you know, that again, in the democratic societies, uh, the danger is the individual is getting weaker and is more prone to, well, whatever you want to call it, propaganda, groups, sentiment, uh, you know, which begins to put a question mark about you know democracy. I mean, what does it mean if if we can't trust the individual to ferret out truth and untruth? It's it's a dangerous time, a dangerous mm. development. Uh, yeah, I mean, I find that argument. It, it obviously bears similarities to arguments made, you know, fifty, sixty years ago by the new left, um, and. Um, yeah. And and but I find it more much more compelling today, especially if you consider to take an example that you've kind of just suggested, which is that of, for example, censorship or free speech, where a lot of the discussions on the left today, um, it seems that there is um, 
an attempt to kind of wipe away or ignore, dismiss claims of censorship if it comes from within civil society. Um, that as long as it's not the state saying, no, you're not allowed to say this, that that it's okay. And so there seems to be relative, pretty little concern for cultivating a spirit of open debate and free speech and so on. Um, uh, and as you know, as long as it's not state censorship. So I think that would kind of underscore your point. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I, I mentioned somewhere, you know, I mean, leftist professors who, who you know, put posters in their the office of Che or even Mao, uh, you know, they're, they're revolutionaries, but they won't challenge their colleagues on anything. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, a consensus um, that, you know, they, so, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to be um, forthright and radical uh, about issues, you know, in the third world or something. And, you know, it's, it's, it's proving to be <laughs> uh, less and less, I mean, more and more difficult to challenge your, your colleagues or friends. And so, yes, I, I think, you know, we see this happening, uh, you know, the censorship or conformity uh, has become more and more of an issue uh, on the left, uh, you know, which historically has opposed censorship and, you know, it's beginning to waffle even on that issue as far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I if I can be maybe a little bit critical of, the book or the approach that you take, um, I think you know you've always or something that's come across uh, reading um, several of your books uh, is that you've always excoriated those intellectuals who have limited horizons or you know you you charge them maybe not in spe these specific terms but you know find them guilty of retreating from big dreams. Um, like I always get the sense that you're wanting to say, hey, you know, look, the bare minimum is that you should. Uh, be critical of things as they are and dream of something better. You know, like if you as the critic, like at the very bare minimum, you should be doing this. Like, okay, it's difficult for um, the per guy who comes home exhausted from work to maybe do it um, with little free time on their hands. But you, if you're an intellectual and a critic, then you should be doing this, right? Um, in On diversity, it seems that you perform an intellectual retreat, perhaps, back from the new left, from Freud, from Marx, all the way back to early 19th century aristocratic liberalism. So I wonder if you're not um, guilty today of that which you accused others yesterday, which is of kind of mounting a sort of intellectual retreat to the very, um, you know, the very sort of narrow ground of individuality. Like that's all we have to hold on to, um, that there's no big dreams to be had anymore, just defending the sort of 19th century um, conception of the individual. That's what we've got to do today. Uh, and, and what do you propose as, as, as the alternative? No, I'm asking the, the questions here. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I'm always a little bit skeptical of these sorts of, um, when the concern turned towards, you know, to childhood, to the individual as a way of trying to rebuild these things that we knew, the bases for politics, um, to reconstruct them from the ground up. I'm always a little bit skeptical of them. I'm not sure they work, that the solution is always to be found directly politically or socially in some in some sense. Right. Well, uh, I mean, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. Um, I mean, I, I remain in some ways a student of the Frankfurt School, uh, of, the, of that version of critical theory. Uh, and it always argued that um, 
that the individual was the crucial category uh, in, in in the analysis of society. Um, and even, you know, even you see in Horkheim and others about, you know, the importance of the family, if the family disintegrates, uh, what happens to the individual. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that I don't see it as a retreat. That is, that is the left program for, for rebuilding or restructuring society can't skip over the health of the individual. Uh, that's a, it's, it's a crucial category. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't make a new society, uh, with, with individuals who have lost their backbone or their individuality. Uh, so it seems to me that, you know, it's crucial for a political analysis to consider the fate of the individual in society. And, you know, if it's is if it's as weird as talking about play and what has this done to the individual, um, then so be it. Then, then that's something we have to begin to look at because you can't create a society with individuals who could have lost, you know, their orientation or lost their backbone or lost their autonomy, um, and there. You know, the, the whole question, which which I think you raised, and, and one of the questions you've sent to me is, you know, the question of democracy and what, what, what you know, what is the radical take? I mean, democracy in itself is not just a pure good. I mean, if, 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 if democracy is based on, you know, individuals who are, who are unable to, to, to evaluate and choose, uh then what then then what happens i mean you know i i say in the diversity book too i mean you know hitler wasn't exactly elected but he was virtually elected it was a democratic transition it wasn't an overthrow of the government he was appointed chancellor he the nazis were the biggest party by far well what does one do with that i mean it's not hello i mean it's the largest party. He was the most important individual. I mean, you know, it was it was a democratic transition. Well, you know, we're still pondering that that, but we see it everywhere. I mean, you know, the 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 authoritarian leaders can be very popular. Uh, they can be elected, and what does that mean? I mean, what is what is that a statement about? the individual and his or her ability to make decisions. I'm not giving up hope, but I'm saying that's a category we can't um, bypass. Hmm. So I don't see it as a total retreat to say, let's, let's look at the healthy individual. That's uh, a, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I want to ask you a little bit more about democracy, but just before that, I, and just to put a um, kind of put a bow on this little section, how would you account, I guess, then for this change for the individual lacking um, or losing their backbone? Um, after all, a kind of, you know, there's a temptation to say, well, it's all just capitalism, right? That um, the, the process of homogenization or knocking down Chinese walls, it's an old story. 
uh, and you know the kind of medieval weirdness of of every little town being different and having its own saint and um, whatever. All that stuff isn't coming back. Um, so maybe I'm I'm reiterating a question um, which I asked earlier. But why why yell stop right at this point in history? Or what perhaps put differently? Why what's changed? How do you account for for the um, dissolution of the individual? Well, I, I would love to say it's a it's a vitamin deficiency, uh, you know, B complex <laughs> or uh, vitamin C. I, I don't have a short answer. I mean, uh, yes, I, I think one can reach a point that these developments, which have been discussed for decades, if not centuries, uh, have reached, you know, in, in the last decades, have have raised a question about. Uh, the ability of the individual to make decisions, uh, and you know, is it is it the eclipse of play? Is is it the the omnipresence of of media? Uh, the ability, uh, uh, yeah, of you know, the advancements in propaganda or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know that that you know the individual is 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 proving to be. You know, too weak. I mean, it's not a new development, but it's certainly possible that uh, it's it's you know it, it has come to that point that we see clearer and clearer the dangers. Uh, but you know, it's it's not totally clear. Again, we see you know the history of fascism and Mussolini. You know, we see popular leaders uh, who are virtually elected. Uh, appointed, uh, and we see it in our period too. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's you know the the hope of democracy, which perhaps you wonder, you know, is 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 you know is is not you know so bright. Uh, it's it, it's 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 you know there's a question mark here. Yeah, I think that's compelling, um, and I you know kind of trying to join this up i mean you mentioned you know you discuss in the book um in on diversity this notion of the individual lacking backbone and cite you know forces of uniformity such as newspapers public opinion and social codes and i want to talk maybe a bit about public opinion because i think it's important and maybe not discussed and we don't discuss public opinion enough i guess uh, it seems that it's more preponderant than ever and it's to do with social media and tools of polling, which are more accessible than ever. And it seems like um, we have images of the people um, in our heads all the time and that we perhaps define ourselves in relation to them, uh, in, in relation to this notion of public opinion at all times. And it's something which is very easily manipulable. And I wonder if that's maybe part of the story. Um, maybe it's, a, it's an old discussion, but I think it's something which is um, perhaps not critiqued very much today. You mean the role of public opinion? Yeah, the manufacture, not yeah, the manufacturing of public opinion, the technologies of public opinion, this sort of speculative project where um, public opinion is constantly created and recreated. Um, you know, part social media plays a huge role in this. We can constantly imagine who the people are out there who are discussing this, um, but you know, they might be to a certain extent figments of our imagination. Well, I mean, you know, the question of public opinion, I, I'm not sure what, what I can shed light on that. I mean, you, know, you go back to uh, Walter Lippmann and others who talked about public opinion um, 
I mean, it's it seems like yes, it, it's on one hand, it's completely parcelated, fragmented into a thousand pieces. Uh, so it's very difficult to say, you know, what is uh, public opinion. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, it it it, it seems to uh, you know change. You know, it can change overnight, and it, it's hard to say what um, you know. What are the factors? Um, I mean, you, you look at the the election. You know, going back to the election of Trump, I think all the you know, the, 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 all the public things were wrong, all the public opinion surveys. Um, so you always wonder who, who is who is being asked and who is being surveyed. Uh, you know, I frequently ask my friends, I mean, because you hear public opinion surveys all the time, and I never know a single person who's been surveyed. I mean, I, I don't know who's asked. I mean, how, how do you, <laughs> you know, like... And, and if you're called on the phone nowadays, I mean, no one answers the phone. You're going to answer a survey. I mean, what are the, what are these public opinions based on? I mean, it's it's totally mystifying. They're always they're always referenced the latest polls. I'm wondering who is actually answering these questions because most people wouldn't nowadays. These most people I know, are they stopped on the street, so they phoned. It seems like. So there, I, I put a question mark about, yes, I mean, what, what is the public opinion? It seems to be fabricated. It certainly changes uh, very frequently. Um, on the other hand, there's parts of it, you know, for instance, the, the support for Trump is, is like, uh, you know, it's bedrock. It'll never change. I mean, there's, there's is that, you know, there's this part of the public which, which is set in its ways. Um, so I, I'm not sure, you know, how, how these pieces come together, to tell you the truth, on, on what public opinion is. I, I don't, uh, how, how it's tabulated, how it's researched, uh, is, is always a bit mysterious to me. Mm. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I guess it strikes me that it's so interlinked with kind of contemporary populism because the mediating institutions of politics um, the old civic institutions of political parties and unions and all the rest are so hollowed out that what you get is this kind of um, somewhat manufactured people that takes the stage in lieu of actual people organized um, and bound together in associations. Well, okay, I mean that's very possible. I don't, I, I don't know that 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 uh, you know we we have representatives who or pundits who who claim that they're speaking. Uh, you know, for the public, uh, but you know, it's it's always a bit mysterious to me. I mean, maybe the public has totally vanished, mm. and we just have self-appointed representatives who who say this is you know uh, what, what people are thinking. Uh, what are people thinking? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, what are people thinking? I guess it's you know the, <laughs> we live it. I guess at a time of of scrambled coordinates. Um, and I wonder what your take is on this and how you position yourself with regard to it. So, you know, specifically, um, you've got phenomena like class dealignment, where the working class no longer votes for the left and the middle class no longer votes for the right. Um, it's kind of got all swapped. Um, and, uh, you know, or, you know, for example, the rise of the Brahmin left and an anti-establishment right, the right seeming to be more rebellious, whereas the left um, increasingly conservative. How do you 
position yourself with regard to these new or emerging <laughs> ideological coordinates? Uh, yeah, that's difficult. Um, I mean, I do think there's something to that, um, and that you know, I, I, I've I, I've sort of wondered about you know progressivism as the term for the at least the American left, uh, which is an adopted, which you know basically is is a kind of statist uh, welfare state approach. I mean, you know, we're progressive. We believe uh, that that things, you know, the state is the answer to many of the issues of the day. Um, so that, I mean, that's, you know, progressivism, you know, pollution, health, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to be sort of paradoxical that the left has become you know, in that sense, conservative. I mean, it, it believes in, 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 in the state and expanding the state. Um, so there's some truth to it that the, that the right is more rebellious. Um, and this is sort of, um, I mean, one of the great paradoxes, uh, and maybe about this kind of right-wing populism, to what extent it rails against corporations and it rails against uh, the mainstream media. Uh, you know, that, that used to be the Chomsky position. <laughs> it's yeah. now the right-wing position. Yeah. You know, so how, how, does that, how did that happen? You know, this sort of the Chomsky denunciation of the mass media has become the right-wing position. Um, and then people like your, your, I don't know, your colleagues, but Gordon Greenwald, the people like that have now become sort of Fox News people, you know. Um, so there is, there is this very paradoxical uh, shift taking place. Um, and, you know, I'm not prepared to, to pronounce on it all, but it's clear that the left itself uh, has become more conservative. I mean, it, it you know it is part of a liberal establishment, and real opposition to that doesn't exist on the left. It exists at least in ideology on the right. I mean, DeSantis attacking corporations and Walt Disney Corporation—that's the right-wing position. You know, that's weird, right? The right is attacking American corporations and the mass media. I mean, that used to be the left position. How did that come about? Well, um, I'm, not, I'm not totally certain. I, mean, I, I think it's a bit of a fraud on the right. Uh, at least it's, it's. and again, one should remember that, you know, and I, I, I'm very leery of talking about, um, you know, the dangers of fascism, but it's important to remember that the, the critique of, I mean, you know, the, the Nazis were national socialists. I mean, and they attacked capitalism, at least certain kinds of capitalism, Jewish capitalism. They were critics of capitalism. Uh, you know, certain kinds of capitalism, you know, they attacked. And we see this on the right. Uh, you know, re-emerging certain kinds of attack on capitalism, you know, is being unfair. Uh, so this is, 
you know, this is a right-wing movement, and then the left itself has become, I think, more statist and sort of, uh, you know, New Deal is is the furthest uh, left position at this point. Mm. And just to finish off, this will sound like a leading question, following it on, following on as it does from the previous one, and I don't mean it that way, but your concern with um, and worry about conformity and uh, the lack of uh, or the kind of dissolution of the individual and the way that that can play into authoritarianism um, and demagoguery. How, where do you see this fundamentally emerging from? Um, whether, you know, whether you see it from the right, center or left or um, from other social forces, which can't be kind of so easily labeled right, left or center, where do you see them coming from? And maybe, um, I don't want to ask the cliche thing which people do at the end of interviews and go, well, what do you do about it? Um, <laughs> tell us the answer. Um, but do you see any um, cause for optimism or cause for hope, I, I guess, um, on the contemporary scene? But, but are you asking about the, the kind of authoritarianism that's emerging on, on the left and the right? Uh, uh, that, per, that... Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Or, or you know, whether this... Um, the combination of conformity and the proneness to a certain authoritarianism, which certainly is, I think, a real thread. Where you see that? Where you, do you see that coming from? Uh, again, I'm not sure. I mean, I think one of the difficulties of politics in the current period, and particularly if one no longer talks about fundamental issues, which is to say. Uh, the reorganization of work and capitalism. Uh, one is left with a kind of symbolic politics, language, statues, symbols. And I think, you know, in some sense, people become uh, more dogmatic on these issues the less there are real issues. So we can't figure out how to stop racism, but we're going to remove some statues and rename some schools. I mean, that we could do, right? And we're not going to, and, you know, we're, we're not going to be flexible about it. But it's partially a result of the inability and failure of trying to get to the root causes of like of poverty and racism. We can't figure it out. It's gone on for so many decades. But what we can do, we can rename the Woodrow Wilson School because he was a racist. We could do that, right? And we could take out, and so we're going to do that. We're going to rename schools. And you go, so people become, I think, somehow more dogmatic and authoritarian on these issues, the less they're able to really figure out the root causes. And I think that plays out a lot. Uh, so we're going to shut down these speakers. This is the left. Because we really can't figure out what's going on. <laughs> but we don't want to hear them. You know, we, we, you know we, see, we see a resurgence of the right in society. And what are we going to do about it? We're going to shut down some speakers. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's really a great answer. But you could see how it, well, that's the least we could do. We're not going to have those speakers at our school because they are not for, 
you know, trans individuals. We're going to shut them down. I mean, but is that, you know, is that a root cause here? I mean, it's like, in that sense, yes, the compensation. I, and I see that happening a lot. I mean, that, that, I mean, to be sure, there's an authoritarianism on the left, which is old. Uh, I mean, Stalin, Mao, I mean, uh, you know, there, there, is, there is an authoritarianism. Um, I, I'm not sure that feeds into this, but um, I mean, that's an old, an old story. But I see this kind of symbolic politics. Uh, people become more dogmatic, the less they can really figure out the root causes. And as to what we can do about it, yeah, I don't know, vitamin C, vitamin D, um, uh, you know, exercise. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it means, you know, toughen up uh, and, 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 you know, flex your backbone a little bit. Um, I mean, and, and you mentioned earlier, I mean, I think there is a, a new generation emerging, which is not professors of intellectuals or perhaps critics, uh, which is a very positive outcome. And maybe that's the hope. All right. Very good. I guess we'll leave that there. Um, okay. Thank you very much, Russell. This has been great. All right. Thank you. It's been thank a pleasure. You. All right, George, Phil, you guys have read some plenty of Russell Jacoby's work. Um, and I guess this is the first time you heard him being interviewed on a podcast. I don't know how many he's done. Seems relatively few. Um, though he did seem to be an advocate of podcasts. So that was nice to hear. <laughs> um, yeah. What did you was find? He? Well, he, he, you know, not podcasting in general, maybe he, you know, that there might be other sites for intellectual discussion outside of academia. Yeah. I was intrigued yeah. by this. Um, because, you know, like it seems basically he was uh, perhaps uh, retreating from the position in the um, last intellectuals in as much as, you know, the he said, you know, that there is a public intelligentsia outside the academy. Um, he didn't really get into it. How, um, you know, and he mentioned in the discussion that the kind of public discourse or the uh, public intellectual life is still kind of saturated with the um the jargon of academic critical theory despite the fact that you have this intelligentsia that's no longer integrated into the academy um and you know like he didn't i mean you know perhaps he wasn't willing to be drawn or perhaps he didn't have um you know he didn't have anything to say on it but it does strike me that you know that it's true and we do see some benefits of it i think um, what do you mean benefits of it well, in the sense that there are, you know, there is like a broad, um, there is a broad intelligentsia that is kind of aping academic critical theory and is still, I think, kind of, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but consumed with resentment and grievance that it didn't secure its, um, you know, tenured position and therefore still defines itself by problems that are an agenda, a political and intellectual agenda that's set essentially by the academy. Are you, but, is this about me and George? I mean, we're no, right here. Why would you? Why, this, um, <laughs> why would it sounds you like a terrible that? kind of state of affairs if academia is setting the the problems and defining the language that you know. But there are that the there are, are used. 
but there are you know there are people who who um stand out outside of that and there is you know there is like and you know not wishing to again not wishing to put too fine a point on it but you know there is a wider intellectual discussion which podcasting is is part of and that seems to me something valuable but you also have people who you know, have managed people, I don't know, like people we've had on this pod, no less. I mean, I suppose figures like Branko Milanovic or Wolfgang Streak, people who've managed to kind of carve out a public role for themselves in this new context that I think perhaps would have been more difficult in the age prior to Substacks and blogs and podcasts. But they um, are, I mean, they have yeah. academic positions, those two. They do, excited, they so. do. So, but I was also thinking of other, you know, other people that we've also had on, um, uh, you know, I suppose Amber Ali Frost would be one, I think, you know, people who have a public profile who are essayists um, or Angela Nagel, another people who have that public profile in intellectual debate and even kind of shape and molded in particular ways, but aren't their authority doesn't derive from, you know, holding an academic chair, which is different to the world that Jacobi described um, in the last intellectuals. And so, you know, he admitted that in his discussion with you. Um, he wasn't willing to, kind of, or he didn't go into talking about how, you know, um, how the quality of the new intelligentsia. But it seems to me that there are some, you know, there are some uh, some standout kind of luminaries within it, which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this point about the social critic um, today, in general, being somebody who's a tends to be a professor, speaking to students and colleagues, that informing the language they use. You know, those students may be leaving academia to, to carrying forward that jargon and that like approach. I think that is a good a good point. What you were saying, Phil, made me think that there is a kind of there's almost like an outsider social critic today who is, you know, who's defined by a lack of an academic position. Maybe they've fallen foul of kind of <clears throat> the norms of they've been cancelled in, in the parlance. And, and so that is a kind of a different sort, I guess a different set of things that would give them legitimacy or or authority and that's you know that is a well, that is a step forward if it's not just like not just academics well, you know nothing say, against them but good grief it's a world of unheard right of american affairs of jacobin um, damage magazine of sidecar the blog for new left review which is very good you know um, and it seems to me it's positive that those publications, you know, that those publications mm. exist and that they're non-academic. And that is that world, I think, um, that he's describing. And that seems to me like, you know, I mean, I don't, um, I have my favorites with, you know, among those that I discussed and favorite writers within those fora. But, you know, the fact that they exist seems to me to be positive in, in and of itself. I mean, a slight tangent, you know, or a reflection on this is that, this isn't a return to the pre-professionalization of uh, the world of thought. Uh, it's not pre-academia. We're not going back to how it was before. And not just because academia still plays a huge role in, in intellectual life, but more that what preceded the professionalization of thought, particularly of kind of in the humanities of political and particularly of political thought, is that previously it was associated very often to political parties as well um, and to party life, um, not exclusively, but in, in many cases. Um, and that is absent still today. So, yeah, and, that... and, and so what, what, and today it takes the form of media, right? So it's not the independent intellectual who's able to get by and live fairly cheaply because rent is cheap. Um, that's true but you they know, have the to set up a podcast and have a patreon or be be part of a magazine or be part of some sort of media project I'm not saying that's some of I'm them, not, yeah no 
I think you know the sub. The point is the Substack Independent Left is and the the ind- intelligentsia associated with it. And I'm using that as a shorthand. I don't mean literally only the people who write for Substack, but you know, I mean, I think it's not. You know, it cuts both ways. So it's true that it's you know perhaps less party political affiliated. But Branko Milanovic again. I mean, this is a point he made. You know, it, in one sense, it's kind of a, it is a intellectually wondrous time because these you know the end of with the end of the end of history, that regime, that kind of liberal authoritarian regime has been cracked open and a lot of intellectual options have, um, you know, been returned and can be discussed in a way that they weren't discussed before. That isn't to say that there isn't, you know, all the authoritarianism um, still, um, you know, associated with woke that is um, policing and suppressing discussion, but also there, you know, you can have meaningful discussions about, all sorts of um, what would have otherwise or hitherto been obscure intellectual and political episodes. And you're not, this is what Milanovic said, you're not going to get shot if you make the wrong choice, right? Mm. And that might change in the future, right? And that seems to me, but nonetheless, that still seems to me to be a good thing and something that should be, you know, if you can, people should make their, um, are in a position to make choices, Right, whose political meaning might become more, you know, the stakes might crystallize and become more significant in the future. Yeah, I mean, it did sound like you were saying getting shot might be a good thing, but I think that was just that was unintentional. That was just the way the what sentence ran like, together. It's the implication. It is the implication. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, one thing which came through in in the chat was obviously talked about utopia, the, the state of utopian thought today and it you know he had a he had a limited definition i think you could call it of utopia so he you know this idea that you have regressive utopias you have nazism is is a sort of a utopia you have utopias left right and center he he definitely seemed to push against that and say well no the 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 concept of utopia requires something a bit grander dream big as as you might put it kind of essentially a whole vision of society um and this is you know this is something which not all social theories or not all political ideologies um actually embrace so i think he you know that is a useful corrective to probably the the word getting chucked around a little bit too frequently today i would say yeah i mean a lot of the what he discusses in the end of utopia but particularly i think in at the beginning of picture imperfect is this idea and i think this was something which was more prevalent in the mid 2000s but this idea that you know the nazis were utopian and if you think if you dream big, you're going to end up in the gulag, right? That was like a, a very common refrain in discussion at that time. And it was a way of clamping of down on any kind of questioning of the way society was ordered. That is, as Phil has just been indicating, is less the case today, I think. And that's... Yeah, great. I mean, but I mean, just to give you an example, so I had a Tory friend, right, who when Ed Miliband, the former Labour leader in 2015, the leader prior to Jeremy Corbyn, when he said they were tinkering or you know floating the idea that they might intervene more in the railway sector, I had a Tory acquaintance slash friend who you know went nuts and called the idea of intervene you know the kind of idea that the state should involve itself more in the railway sector as utopian, in the <laughs> sense that you know like the next step would be complete control of the economy and setting up gulags. So I mean it's difficult to you know I think it's difficult to understate just how um, hedged in. You know, certain kinds of um, even, you know, fairly kind of, uh, you know, timid politics was by the technocratic consensus of the time. Um, And also as part of that, you know, I think um, 
it's also that I, you know, the Steven Pinker version of, of Utopia. Essentially, when you say utopian, what it meant, you know, what it has come to mean is um, it's a kind of synonym for extremism or um, some vision of um, perfection. Whereas, um, you know, Jacoby, and in his discussion with you, but also in the book, you know, he stresses that it has to be something which is meaningfully, you know, that it resonates with enlightenment themes um, of universalism, pacifism, and improvement in the human condition, yeah. which is why the Nazi kind of racial state or a thousand-year Nazi empire isn't utopian for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, it's got to be. A, he He's resistant in defining, I think, in the beginning of the books, he even says, I'm not going to define utopia. But yeah, it basically has to be something that promises some form of plenty or at least of equality and freedom. Um, uh, and, is and, un, and is universal. And is universal. Well. Yeah, important. Um, yeah, which is why these little hived off uh, areas of, of, you know, kind of a utopia of winners, as I as I called it in reference to kind of Peter Thiel's seasteading, for example, or the discussions yeah. that you two had with Quinn Slobodian about zones of capitalism would not count as utopian. Um, you see, I thought he, I mean, you know, that said now, you know, the risk of contradicting myself, I thought he, he, you know, he, sh I think if they're not utopian, and I think you can make the case that they're not utopian, I think he underestimates their, their allure. And neoliberalism is, you know, I mean, neoliberalism isn't fascism. Neoliberalism has an explicit commitment to freedom, which, you know, you can indicate the contradictions within that and how it fails to deliver on that promise. But it does offer, you know, an, a vision of emancipation. And so um, his unwillingness, I think, to concede that it has some of that glimmer um, or you know some of that appeal, I think is yeah, I think it's important, and I thought he should have conceded to you on that. I'm, well, <laughs> now I'm going to contra contradict myself, but I mean I, the neoliberal um, relationship to freedom, I think, is something that has long passed. It was something that was a facet of neoliberal thought before neoliberals took power, and was maybe a feature of the neoliberal cell, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, it definitely the, the period, was the period of rollback neoliberalism of cutting back the state that certainly was but i think the period of rollout neoliberalism of kind of extending market logics into all these domains of life starts to lose the the the, the relationship to freedom i think kind of no, in, it in does right but the point is it's not it's you know nazism isn't utopian because no, it's sure, explicitly sure. based on repudi repudiation of the promise of liberty and universalism, you know, and progress, which those are things that are part of the neoliberal package, or at least the neo I should say the neoliberal offer, at least, right? So, so we should discuss ourselves if we think that there is any utopian thought out there, or at least some glimmers of maybe deeper thinking, which points to different futures. Is there something out I there? Think, I tried to kind of draw yeah. uh, Jacoby out on that, but no, I think I think you're right that <clears throat> at least on on the left, it it is kind of. UBI and automation of, of some sort that is the I think that would f fulfill all the criteria of being you know universal peace and kind of you know um, security for your uh, for your grandchildren I think is is um, what uh, Jacoby said uh, Thomas More was talking about if I remember correctly and yeah I think that's that probably is it and it's that it doesn't have a clear well maybe it does in, in some articulations but there is a certainly a whole form of society imagined there. It is something which everybody should get on, is supposed to get on board with. So I would say that is the, you know, the contemporary utopianism that we have. And it is one, yeah, Alex, I think, as you correctly pointed out, that's based on, on a sort of withdrawal or 
resignation of of some of some sort. So, yeah, I think that's probably the character of utopian thinking today, at least on the left. So, I mean, I'm I'm working on a thing in which I discussed kind of just briefly that some of the there's so much dystopian fiction out there that has been on our screens, particularly over the past decades. And some people have observed, and something that I've observed in a couple of recent uh, editions um, of some form of dystopian fiction, particularly post-apocalyptic fiction, um, whether they be zombie apocalypses or others, um, a kind of a slightly warmer, more human note to them, where the post-apocalyptic um, scene has people refounding community, um, being more free to pursue um, well, they're talking about the last of us well so that's one case and and the, and something which puts this even more clearly the genuinely beautiful and touching station 11 which if you haven't seen i strongly recommend um i'm actually planning to rewatch it um it's it's i found it that good um where there as well there it's not a vision of plenty um, because the old world has been destroyed so it's not an industrial civilization it's a world where in fact we're you know all that kind of the busyness and the intensity of the industrial world is is put behind us but it allows us to kind of refound community and freedom and people can dedicate themselves to the arts to learning an instrument to doing theater or to building structures which are necessary for society um, building a water tank for the community whatever it might be um, this relates a little bit to the discussions we've been having in the reading club about Martin Hagelin's book. It's also discussion relates to discussions we had with Alex Gurevich about um, UBI and associated notions of post work. Um, I'm, you know, we, I think we've all been kind of relatively ambivalent on, on on a lot of these questions, but I just think it's interesting to observe that there might be a shift in tone going on there, which I would read as positive. So we don't have utopian thinking, but we have post-dystopian thinking, i.e. the best that we can hope for is a dystopia which kills 95% of people but leaves, <laughs> you know, some people you alive. Get, to, yeah, you if we're like, going to read it literally, yeah. Nice, you get to keep a nice flat, you know, like the water is still running in your flat, maybe. Oh, well, not the really. No, these are this outside is... the compound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that in the case of the Last of Us, I suppose. No, I was thinking actually no more of the of the of Jackson, Wyoming, and what that becomes uh, in the Last of Us. Um, at least in season one, I haven't played the video game. I don't play video games. I I, I don't know how that develops, but um, it, that does seem like to be a, a genuinely functioning community which provides people with um, self realization. Yeah, it does. It does show the low base we're operating from. If it's a turn from like the complete bleakness of you know, almost reveling in, in the, the dystopian grimness to now there are green shoots of, of, of hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, that is, yeah, I think we're, we're much more familiar Look, with dystopian than utopian, you know, art and, and thought today, definitely. The two things are very closely linked though, right? Because I mean, you know, even the extreme dystopian, you know, impulse and the extreme dystopian thought is a way of kind of imaginatively wiping the slate clean. You know, like I watched um, recently, uh, I saw or caught the end of um, uh, The Day After Tomorrow, which is the early 2000s, um, you know, kind of end of the world as a result of climate change. That's where and everything I, gets covered in ice, right? Is that it? Yeah, everything gets covered in ice. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's idiotic because it's supposed to be about global warming, but everything gets covered in ice. But anyway, um, you know, at the end, it's like, it's kind of this fee, this... Um, this clear sense of beginning anew, you know, and I think there is, so there is that kind of, um, 
that's part of the dystopian appeal kind of very intimately closely shadowing the dystopian moment is that kind of utopian possibility within it you know and so i think there is a kind of an intimacy there which is um the two follow each other and the closest we can get is this kind of wish for beginning again you know press the reset button yeah, yeah essentially yeah so one last theme i think to draw out is this question of individuality and uh this is a maybe a, a term or a distinction that Jacobi sort of leans on, and it's taken from de Tocqueville, who distinguishes himself from individualism, which is more akin to what used to be called egoism or egotism, and individuality, which is really just that kind of the diversity you would get when humans are allowed to flourish, right? And maybe you got that with a 19th century bourgeois individual. Um, and of course, that was hardly extended to the whole of society or even to the majority of society. There was that that possibility. But nevertheless, there was a, by, by Jacobi's reading of these accounts, and it's something that I certainly buy, a kind of wider appreciation and wider reality of a kind of uh, individuality with backbone that existed then, uh, a conception of freedom which is different to ours today. And if that is the case, how are we to communicate the value of individuality today? Because I think a lot of, I mean, my experience is that whenever I try to make this argument, people just are like, I don't get it, or this is just an argument for individualism. Um, particularly people on the left will be like, well, this is the opposite of collectivism and therefore, and we want, we're collectivists, the right is individualist. And so we're not interested in individuality. It's quite hard to make yeah. this case today. I mean, I think this is probably my favorite bit of the interview when, you know, talking about the, uh, the end of the end of boredom and then segueing from, from that into, you know, this idea, like, do we still create subjects appropriate to democracy? Um, and it did, you know, it was, a, it was, I think, a really neat kind of twist that, that in the way that Jacoby was explaining it, that like, as we become more individualized, the individual gets weaker. So this kind of like these, all these 19th century <clears throat> liberal thinkers um, and, you know, various other thinkers as well have been worried about this, like the necessity of this, the individual unit for, for democracy and whether we have this um, today. And I particularly liked his you know, example of the pickup basketball game. I mean, I did translate this into, you know, pickup football, not soccer, pickup football game, kind of like jumpers for goalposts, enduring image, where you have to kind of come together and, and make these uh, rules um, kind of on the fly. You don't have to do that with video games. There's always that structuring authority. And so, yeah, I, I kind of was was definitely... I think more sympathetic the more that he was explaining it, how this like this all links together, this kind of here's the socialization um, experiences needed to produce the individual. Here's how this is based um, or here's how this this leads into, you know, subject formation, which is is something which is important for, for political communities and political decision making. Um, so, yeah, I kind of was was concluding in my head, at least that, you know, democracy needs boredom we kind of you know this is the way that the individual uh develops in a sufficient way to to kind of um to acquire this sense of individuality you know develop political subjectivity and eventually become um become kind of politically active so yeah it, it did make me sort of see how some of these things were were all connected together which i didn't think um i would uh, kind of be sympathetic to when he when he started talking about this pickup basketball game it's uh i i I credit Jacoby for not having, you know, being willing to admit that it's a, 
under your kind of questioning that it's a complex problem and it's very difficult to draw a line after which you can say this problem is objectively worse than it was in the past, you know, and he was willing to say that and he didn't have some well-rehearsed kind of stock answer to some of these questions. And I, you know, I think that, like I say, that's to his credit. I would just, I would caveat what you said, Alex. So I don't think, I think it's wrong perhaps to think of individuality as something that was restricted to, you know, to the narrow circle of the wealthy, um, you know, say in the 19th century, but rather as something that was genuinely kind of more widely that bourgeois idea of individuality, I think was more widely accessible precisely through participation in the public sphere, through um, the cultivation of a private sphere, um, and that those things were real, um, at least prior to the real development of industrialization in the late 19th century. So with the develop, you know, the kind of that um, the laboring classes get sucked in to regimented, highly organized um, systems of production over which they have no control on the one hand and the salaried middle classes, um, their kind of John Teal lives get um, integrated increasingly into, you know, the white collar salariat and um, the bureaucratic hierarchies of the modern state and the modern corporation. And I think that would, you know, that's the kind of the, um, and it's that line that develops in monopoly capitalism, mass politics and totalitarianism, that is the line that is, you know, traced by Horkheimer and the the pressures to which the bourgeois ego is subject, um, you know, by the mid to late 20th century. So to that extent, I don't, you know, I don't think individuality was this kind of small thing. I think it was a genuine thing that has been, undermined and hollowed out over the course of the last 100, 150 years. Um, and it's difficult within that to draw, you know, to draw a line. I mean, the at the same time, I think you have to, you know, you have to trust your instincts on this and say it is worse, you know. I think it must be worse now for all sorts of reasons. That he, even with the, um, you know, even notwithstanding the fact that we still have, we don't have totalitarian mass politics, but we do have large... Um, you know, alienating structures, bureaucratic structures, organizational structures of all kind. But compounded with that, you have these pernicious developments in, you know, in child rearing and education. Um, compounded with that, you have like um, the erosion of leisure time um, and the stagnation of leisure time and, you know, the kind of frantic and prolific um, character of work, the conflation of leisure and work. And those things seem to me, you know, you can identify them as further retrograde trends within the mangle. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, because Jacoby was explicit about this, that, you know, I'm I'm going to caricature how he put it. This is not the terms in which he discussed it, but that the problem is with the people, not with politics. Now, I, 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 I'm, that is a caricature, caricatured way of putting it. But basically, you know, the idea being, and he take, he refers back to J.S. Mill with this, where the threats to individuality and the pressures of conformity are things that come from within civil society. It's not something that the state is doing. Yes, there is state censorship, but he wants to turn his gaze to this culture of conformity. Um, and we can maybe extend this a bit further. And I want, you know, I'm also curious what you guys make of this, you know, of when we, when discussing these things, whether, you know, the problem is not the state or the bureaucracy oppressing us, but the problem is um, our culture, the way that we interact, the problem lies with the people. We have to be more sociological rather than political in our critique. And I, I think, you know, I've kind of tend to flip between these two. I think both are necessary, but I think it's worth 
kind of dwelling upon um, for a second and, and thinking about what where the limits to freedom come from today. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's, it can't be a fully a simple answer, but I think the point that he, he made about like what explains the appeal or the, like how prominent the ideology of diversity is, this must be something about the world becoming more homogenous. These two things are, are, are linked sociologically, um, definitely that it's, you know, I think you, you are, you kind of push them on this. Is it a compensation for the, for the lack of diversity? That's where the, the appeal of the idea comes in. And that, you know, he, he mentioned, you know, the, the cheap commodities, battering down the Chinese walls and even in the Communist Manifesto, this observation, you know, that we have one, we have a world literature, we have a world culture. Um, there is a homogenizing force within within capitalism, which um, is very, very strong. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess, is it a political, is it a sociological explanation? You know, it can't be fully one or the other, but I think there is... Yeah, you don't want to kind of blame the people or blame the the elites like have that those being the two options i don't think it's a question of of blame but there certainly are these very strong economic and you know other forces which are definitely homogenizing and that's that's the, the situation we find ourselves in today i think your intuition must be right alex that the yeah the kind of the cultural the authoritarian conformity of um you know woke for want of a better phrase um, and the cultural conformity that that is kind of laid on top of um, meshes with the kind of uh, economic and cultural globalization that Jacobi spoke to. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's uh, like you say, the kind of insistence on diversity is like the guilty, the guilty um, expression of uh, or secret acknowledgement of the fact that there is no individuality at all just kind of shallowness and conformity well um i'm reluctant to finish on that note no but... people people like different he, he pointed out people like different foods and different music and that's you know that's that's the great diversity of humanity that we have today that's, that's um, the but no, consumer I think... diversity yeah that's what you that's what you get guess... when it, it reduces shopping choices effectively yeah i mean i guess the question is how does that how does that dialectic like just just like that idea that we're becoming more like individual is undermined as we're individualized like where do these kind of dialectics end up what contradictions do they pr produce and how does that move on to a new a new situation i mean that would take another another long interview but i think that's the you know that's that's the, the question that you you sort of comes to mind when you think about these things i think that's a nice way to put it and maybe we'll end there i think this, this question of how individuality becomes undermined as we become more individualized or atomized I think that's something to dwell on um, and maybe we should come back to on another episode but for now we will leave that there thank you very much for accompanying us uh, thank you for being a subscriber to uh, BungaCast on patreon and we look forward to your thoughts on this episode um, and we look forward to discussing them which we will do uh, rather soon in the next alpha bonus bonus episode thanks for being with us catch you later bye bye <music>